Okay, good morning. Today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be starting with verse 6, I believe. And first of all, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather under the means of grace to open our hearts to you, knowing how badly we need you continually to be working at a work of grace in us and through us so that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for the scattered flock around the world who are listening and who hunger and thirst for the truth. Lord, may they be filled and may they also grow in, in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, before I start Second Corinthians, I want to give a quick positive report about something we've been doing. I think I mentioned to you we're, we have a test case going for people that are in uh, cities that don't have a gospel church. And I found one that looked like a good test case. And so we're sending DVDs of our services to this couple who opened their home to start a house church using our DVDs as their sermon. And I just got a report back that they've already outgrown their home. And they're looking for, <laughs> and other people want to come, so they're looking to find a place. You saw it, Dick, right? Yeah, find a place to rent so that they could have a bigger church. So that was the outcome I was hoping for. And if that particular, based on their experiences, if we find a model that works, I'd like to create something that could be reproduced for people that want to start house churches. But the, the big downside, obviously, with house churches, you may not have anybody trained well enough to be able to deal with theology at a, a very deep level. And I'm not saying you have to have that, but the better teaching you have, the more powerful the work of grace is, because the truth of God's Word is what changes people's lives. And so there's no reason why you can't import that into your home and do all the other stuff like communion and prayer and fellowship and the other means of grace. So if that model works, I think that would be a cool thing. So I'm excited to get a positive report. Now, our passage is this, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 6. But, but God, well, let's start with verse 7 to get the context. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Notice the start, but God. How often can we say, say that? <laughs> that how bad our things are, were, could be, and but God. In other words, when God intervenes graciously, there is great comfort and great hope. It changes a lot of things. <laughs> So God comforted, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6, God comforts the depressed, and he brought comforting to the, by the coming of Titus. Now, as we've taught in hermeneutics, and as I pointed out, one of the things when you're looking for a theme, look for repeated terminology. That's, I mean, it's just a basic hermeneutical principle, but it's not hard to find it here, because the term comfort is found twice in verse 6, and twice in verse 7. And it's given in contrast to the situation in verse 5, afflicted 
on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Conflicts without, fears within, but God brings comfort. So that is how God works graciously and what he did in the life of Paul. The affliction is something that we go all the way back. Here this theme of comfort goes back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul introduced this theme. Now he comes back to it. Let's remember that. It's been a long time since we were in chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort. So notice the theme. So Paul introduced the theme of comfort. Then he went into this whole section of dealing with the conflicts that he'd been having with them, the severe letter, defending his new covenant ministry, describing his new covenant ministry. And then now he tells us through what means God brought comfort. So he introduced the fact that God comforts in chapter 1 and then doesn't come back to the reason that he found comfort until chapter 7. And it was because... Titus, they had finally rendezvoused. Remember I said that Paul hadn't found Titus, so he went on to somewhere else. And this is, imagine in the ancient world, there's no lines of communication. So you're trying to, two travelers going through a a continent, (laughs) or going through um, Asia Minor, and or ultimately Macedonia and Achaia, how do they know if they're going to meet up? And if he didn't find him where he expected him to be, it's not like they had uh, on-time ratings for the airlines. Okay, you don't, you don't, you can't really schedule anything. You don't know when you're going to be where when you're traveling by these rudimentary means that they had in those days. And so Paul ended up likely in in Philippi, where there was a church, and actually found Titus, or Titus found him. And Titus was the one who was going to have a report about that severe letter. So Paul sent the severe letter, rebuking them strongly, and he's afraid that they're going to turn against him and therefore turn against the gospel. And so the afflictions and fears and difficulties was Paul's concern that Titus was going to bring a bad report and that he'd have worse problems with the Corinthian church. But when Titus did finally meet Paul, he came with a report that Paul's severe letter had done what he had hoped it would do and had brought them sorrow that led to repentance. And Paul is saying, I'm not happy about the sorrow. It's regrettable, but, it was, but now I do not regret it because it was worthwhile because the sorrow that leads to repentance is from God. And so his severe rebuke of the Corinthian church had brought repentance at least by some, although we still know there were some problems in the church and Paul is going to return to that theme later in 2 Corinthians. So back to verse 6, knowing the context, the comfort came by means of the coming of Titus with his report that the letter that's now not extant, we don't have a copy of, did what God wanted it to do. Now, this comforting um, is God's action and it's what God brings people under the new covenant. The word for comfort is parakaleo, 
this word has an interesting range of meanings that have to be determined by the context. It's a very common word in the New Testament. And the word parakaleo means to call alongside. Okay, So it can mean exhort. It can mean encourage. It can mean comfort. And in various nuances, depending on the context. So parakaleo can be a strong exhortation for somebody to change. You know, you call them alongside and say, you need to change. But it also can be calling us to God's hope and comfort. And so, in this case, the context makes clear that parakaleo in this verse means comfort because it's obvious that that's uh, indicated by the context. Now, this word, parakaleo, is also used in Isaiah 49.13, and we may have an allusion going on there. So, Robert... Could you read Isaiah 49 and verse 13? Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Yeah, God comforts the afflicted. So we have the same idea here of the afflicted. Now, the New American Standard translates this word depressed. And the word means to, can mean humble, or it can mean low, or it can mean downhearted, or downcast, or even depressed. So in this context, the New American Standard Translation is, in a, re- is a reasonable one. Does anybody have a different translation besides depressed? Somebody have the New King James? Patrick. Afflicted. Okay. Yes. Downcast in the New King James? Okay, downcast, afflicted, depressed. All of those are within uh, our English range of meanings that would fit the, the word as used in the Greek. So it's not a sin to be in that condition. Okay? Paul was in the condition of being downcast, afflicted, or depressed. In fact, remember that, that audio I played of MacArthur preaching from Second Corinthians, and he said Paul was downright depressed. <laughs> now, the reason I say that, the reason I say that's not a sin, is because we live in a fallen world, and we live in a depressing world. Now, I'm not saying we should aim to be depressed as our goal in life, or that we should try to be depressed just to prove how badly we hate the world we're in. But as a matter of fact, there's a lot of bad things going on, and sometimes they rain down on us heavily, as it did in the case of Paul. So I would therefore say that this happy talk version of Christianity is insufficient. In other words, Norman Vincent Peale, power of positive thinking. Just, just be positive, everything's going to get better. Or self-talk, okay? Uh, that was invented years ago. There was a guy by the name of a Frenchman, by the name of Emile Coué, who traveled to America in the early 20th century, I believe, if I've got my dates right. And he had filled auditoriums teaching his thing that was called Coueism. And Emile Coué would just tell people to talk to themselves. And what they would say to themselves that he taught them was this. In every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. <laughs> now, that was just that was enough to fill auditoriums. Oh, 
That's all I need to do. Every day and every way, I'm getting better and better. Let's just have happy talk. Well, Kuwait wasn't the last one to do that. Then we had Norma Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. And then we had his disciple, Robert Schuller, the power of positive thinking. Or possibility, no, possibility thinking. And so we're supposed to just look at the positive and put on a good face and go forward and don't be so concerned about the fact that you're depressed or afflicted or downcast or whatever we're going to translate this word. But what Paul did was put himself in the hands of God and he's told what he did. He stayed firm in his belief in the gospel, would not allow anything to get him off duty as far as his apostolic New Covenant ministry. And he says, we renounce the hidden things because of shame, not adultering the word of God, but my life and conscience is there open for all. And if anybody is lost, it's because Satan blinded them, not because we didn't preach the gospel to them clearly. And so in our afflictions, which we don't have to try to hide and we don't have to try to put a positive spin on, God comforts us. God comforts us. And we have hope and comfort no matter how bad it gets because, as we've said many times here, if we have the forgiveness of sins, we have the most important thing we could ever get. If you have the forgiveness of sins, you have everything because then you have something no one can take away from you and you have assurance that in the end you'll be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and you'll be with him and all the others who are saved forever. So God comforts Parakaleo, the depressed, and he comforted us. Paul, as we've been showing you, alternates between the plural and the singular in this letter. Sometimes he says I, sometimes he says us. We've talked about that. By the coming of Titus. So God's action is to comfort his afflicted people, and in this case he did so by making it possible that these two, Titus and Paul, could meet up in a world where it was hard to do such a thing and find out that the severe letter had been used by God for the good. Let me distribute some verses. By the way, it's always optional. Some people feel nervous about Speaking in public or reading a Bible verse in public, it's no shame if you say if you pass. Don't don't feel bad. I heard someone say, "Well, I, I would like to sit in the front row, but I don't dare." <laughs> so lately, I've been going to the second row. So <laughs> you know you're not safe, <laughs> but you are safe because you could just say no. Not everybody wants to read in public, okay, or have their voice go out over the internet. Having scared you about that, uh, Sam, we will go to the second roll. Isaiah 40 and verse 1, and Norma, Isaiah 12 and verse 1, and Brian, Isaiah 51, 12. Anybody here? No, no, no. Uh, Jeremy, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Jessica, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Okay, let's go to Isaiah 40 and verse 1. It's a pretty famous verse, okay? Isaiah 40, verse 1. Okay. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort my people, says your God. That's from Isaiah 40, verse 1. And then we have Isaiah 12, 1, also a very important verse. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, 
For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. So God's anger was turned away, and he brought comfort to God's people. Isaiah 51 and verse 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die, and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? Okay, do not be afraid of man. That theme is taken up in Hebrews 13 as well. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, a messianic prophecy. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Yeah, so remember that passage was kind of the programmatic or thematic verse in Luke that I'm preaching through. Remember in Luke 4 and verse 18, Jesus went into the synagogue of Nazareth and he opens up the scriptures and he reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But the interesting thing about Jesus' reading of it in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, as cited by Jesus um, in a synagogue, is that he only quoted part of it. And the part he left off was the day of the vengeance of our God. And after Jesus cited Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, leaving out the day of vengeance, he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And what he was saying, claiming, was he was the Jewish Messiah. He was the anointed one who would bring the good news and bring the comfort and the things that the people needed. But the vengeance wasn't that day. So thereby, by we see that Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is a prophecy about both advents the first advent, and the second, but it's totally intertwined in the verses. So that tells us something about how prophecy works. We can't just go in the Old Testament and read in order and say, okay, this has to happen, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Because the, the, the prophecies are all melded together, and they're all true. Messiah is going to do everything it says he's going to do, but it turns out that the day of vengeance doesn't happen for a couple thousand years later. So that's why I didn't say today this happens. So now we're in the day of comfort. But here's the gospel. Here's the gospel in this. The day of messianic salvation is now. It began when Jesus announced it during the first advent. The, the imminency of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is drawn near. And now is the day where this comfort is available to those who will believe that Jesus is the Messiah those who would believe the claims of Christ and come to him, those ones are the recipients of messianic salvation. They're the, the poor that hear the gospel. The gospel is preached to the poor, as he said. They're the comforted ones. And they're the ones for whom the day of vengeance is no longer a threat. Okay? Now, for those who haven't embraced faith in Messiah, the day of vengeance is hanging over the heads of the entire human race like a sword of Damocles. Do you remember what that was? The guy that wanted to sit in the king's, eat the king's food and have the royal position, and there was a sword. When he got done eating, he looked up, and there's a sword hanging over his head by a horsehair. Okay, that's the sword of Damocles. So the whole human race has that sword hanging over their head, and we don't know when the thread's going to break. 
And that's the day of vengeance. So in the meantime, we're proclaiming the terms of Messianic salvation so people can escape from that day of vengeance whenever it does come. And find comfort now. We comfort Messianic comfort we already have. We found it now. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Again, there's the idea of comfort. And this is what prophecy is about, by the way. Um, Remember 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3, I believe is the right verse, where it says, He who prophesies, prophesies unto edification, exhortation, and comfort. Right? Now, therefore, in the church, the way we prophesy is that we bring out valid implications and applications of Scripture. And it's from these that we find edification, exhortation, and comfort. Prophecy is not people in the church giving new revelation or speaking some sort of a direct sort of stream of consciousness where they're speaking and God's giving them the words and those are the very words of God. That's how some people conceive a prophecy. I do not believe that. I believe that prophecy under edification, exhortation, and comfort is what we're doing here. Okay, just just discussing that verse, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and applying it. I just prophesied to you, did I not? I just told you the terms of the gospel and the fact of the day of vengeance coming. That's an application of Scripture, but it's to edification, exhortation, and comfort. How? Well, it comforts us because we know we've met Jesus the Messiah and we're safe from that day of vengeance. And we don't have that sword hanging over our head. That's a comforting thing. It's exhortation. In what way? Well, it's exhortation, and now that we realize that there's a lot of people out there that still are in that condition, and we need to preach the gospel to them. Okay? So, and it's, it is certainly edifying by knowing and meditating on the words of God. So that's what prophecy is, and that's how we do it. So, Paul was afflicted, and he had sorrows within, fears within, conflicts without, uh, he had been under many per- persecutions, and as you see in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, I came to you with fear and trembling and so on. Okay, yes, now let's have our time of discussion on the verse, and we'll start with Patrick. You could probably spend weeks and weeks discussing all the verses in the Bible that talk about comfort. Um, but my question is a question of application. Christians will be involved in these things, they'll meet with the church and they'll hear the sound preaching of the word and they'll read the Bible and they'll pray and they're still downcast and still afflicted and you say, you try to give them a, uh, a word from the Bible or something to try to comfort them and they say, well I know that, I know that should comfort me, I agree with that, I, that should be a comfort to me, but it's not. Um, what how, what what, what do you, you say do to that? Them? Where do you do? Okay, good yeah. good question, Patrick. Thank you for the question. I think that's something we can find an answer right from what Paul's own situation. Paul's situation was very much like that. He knew all those things too, but he was still afflicted and downcast and depressed. And it, and what what brought it away was God's providence that that He brought the answer to the Titus. I've had that before. 
and this will segue maybe into my discussion about my trip out to California, because I've shared this with Rick Warren. I was in a situation where I was depressed or downcast or afflicted, whatever you want to describe, because I was pastoring an inner city church with a declining attendance. And I had become senior pastor at 95, and I, I had this high hopes that if I really worked hard, it would make a difference. And I really worked hard, and it didn't make a difference. We continued to decline. Every year, less people. Every year, less money to cover our budget. 95, 96, 97. And I dreaded the mail because the mail would bring another letter of somebody resigning from the congregation, people that we had worked with for 20 years. And that's depressing. And, and, you, and you oscillate between blaming somebody because they're not committed enough or blaming yourself for being incompetent. And you don't know what to do. It's not a good thing. And I didn't find any answer. I knew all this. I knew what was true. I knew about the gospel. I knew that I should have the joy of the Lord, and I was just depressed. Right, Diane? (laughs) All right. We have a witness. And how did God deliver me from my depression? By providence, just like he did Paul. Providence. He brought the answer to me in an amazing way. And the answer was I decided to go to a pastor's conference where John MacArthur was going to preach. And I, I shared this with you. you. I put this on the Internet. You heard it. Or I put it here in our Sunday school. He preached a sermon called Restoring the Disheartened Pastor's Joy. And when I heard that sermon, I was rebuked, comforted, and exhorted all at one time. I was rebuked for having had a, a, a wrong understanding or attitude about ministry. John MacArthur said in that sermon that the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is so great that it's the greatest honor ever bestowed upon a man. And that faithfully preaching that gospel is a savor unto God, either of those who are living or dying, unto death or unto life. And he says that God is being honored and glorified by the man who preaches the gospel faithfully from the pulpit whether the people believe it and are saved or reject it and are damned. Because either way, God is given glory because his gospel was proclaimed. Now, I told, I didn't tell that long version, but I told uh, Pastor Rick in our meeting that, that MacArthur was the one that brought me hope when I was in a tough situation in the inner city. Okay? And I just left it at that. And so he knew that I, MacArthur was somebody I admired, and he knows what MacArthur stands for. In that, by the way, God tested it. He tested me in that because that was in 98, when I, January of 98, when I heard that sermon. All right? And so, and I took it to heart, and you, you all are witnesses that the gospel is center, central in our church. Okay? I took it to heart and became more bold in gospel preaching from the pulpit and just continued to do so, but at least I wasn't depressed anymore. Well, grand results. In 99, we shrunk. In 2000, we shrunk. In 2001, we shrunk. In 2002, we shrunk. So continuing on, now not depressed, didn't change anything other than I'm not depressed and the gospel's being preached. Okay. People still continued to leave our church, and we finally shrunk down to the point in 2003 we were 
in survival mode. Okay, we had an elders meeting. We we decided we couldn't afford to keep the building, and we we cut our budget. We've cut salaries. We can't deal with 70 people in this big building. But I still didn't get depressed I, I, because that 98 thing was still alive, and I was getting more excited about preaching the gospel than I ever had been in my life. And then, in 2004, the church started to grow. And people started to get hungry for the gospel, and they started coming in, and and a lot of you came in somewhere in there. Some of you remember when you first came, if you came at the other building. And I'm not going to take the blame for shrinking, and I'm not going to take credit for growing. Because it was the same me preaching the gospel when both things happened. So it's God's providential works. A lot of times the only thing that pulls us out is God does a work providentially that, that is going to do us some good, that we couldn't imagine what it was we needed. There's no way I would have known what I need to solve my problem is go listen to MacArthur at a pastor's meeting. I would have no way of thinking that was what God was going to do. So good question, Patrick, and the answer is, but God. <laughs> Okay, that's what the answer was for Paul. But God. I was afflicted, but God. Yes, Troy. So basically we need to rejoice in all things, and if we have depression, that's not a result of sin. We just keep being faithful to God. We keep preaching yes. the gospel and doing those things. And if, if in the other case there's sin, we find the yep. sin, we repent of the sin, yep. and continue doing... If there's Jesus. some sin uh, that's causing us to be depressed, we can repent of that. But if we can't identify anything, then nobody's ever going to say they're sinless because we're not. But we can't see a cause and effect relationship. In other words, here's what I'm doing. This is what's depressing me. Maybe my sin is I'm a husband and I'm a really rotten one and I treat my wife badly. And I'm depressed because I have a bad marriage. Well, then there's a sin you can repent of. Okay? Uh, you may, maybe you can't make your wife happy, but you could at least be a good husband. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's a sin you can repent of, and then maybe she'll become happy someday. Okay, yes. <laughs> when Jesus was teaching in parables, he didn't ask his followers, his disciples, always to be successful, yeah. but he did ask them to be faithful. Amen. And he said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yeah. The servant will be judged as to how the gospel was preached. Now I want to segue into uh, a my report about the meeting uh, that we had with Rick Warren. First of all, I want to say this. A number of you emailed me with alarm saying that they don't think I should go out there alone. I would not be convinced by any of you. And I, uh, <laughs> I maybe I, I, I just was convinced. I, I didn't think that I should run out and try to find somebody and try to get a last-second airplane ticket. I just didn't want to do that. But the Lord knew. My own thinking is part of providence. I'm not saying it's, it's the liberty. To, I think it was within our liberty to make a decision, but providence is part of my thinking. So I'm thinking, no, I don't need to find somebody to go. Turns out God already had somebody out there by the name of Chris Roseboro. Chris Roseboro, wonderful brother. That was a God said He'd been there for this whole conference listening to all the speakers for three days. Being thoroughly, this was a leadership summit by invitation only where uh, Rick Warren was telling key leaders from all over the world his plans for the peace plan and the new reformation. And so Chris had listened to all of that and taken notes, and he'll be blogging it on his blog, extremetheology.com, in upcoming days and weeks. Now, he was there. And I was able to meet up with them. They, they, by the way, they were very gracious. They paid our way. 
They, they brought me into a nice hotel. The, their chief, one of their top guys came and picked me up at the airport and took care of me, shown really wonderful hospitality. I was able to hear the last hour and a half session, so I was there to listen to that much of it. And then we were brought into uh, a place and we waited because they were having a fairly lengthy press conference, the contents of which you can find on the web now. And then eventually Rick Warren came with, you know, five or six guys, and we sat down across the table, and we talked. Rick asked both of us to tell our stories. Tell me your story. So I told the story of getting saved and being in the charismatic and then getting out of the charismatic and trying to figure out what kind of church to have and deciding to have a Bible church and bringing Dave Hunt in 86, all this kind of stuff, and then how we ended up where we are here. Chris told his story. He had gotten into the Latter Rain movement. He would gotten into a bunch of stuff that really hurt him and beat him up and his wife, and they didn't know where to go, and he ended up studying theology at a Lutheran. He ended up studying theology under a Lutheran uh, theologian, found the truth of the gospel, and now is a teacher in a, a Missouri St. Lutheran church out in San Clemente area. And so we both had a similar story. So I think Rick thought, okay, I, now I understand. You're worried about people getting hurt by bad He didn't say that, but you can see he's, the wheels are turning. I think, okay, now I understand where you guys are coming from. And then he, he asked us some other questions, and he said, okay, why are you guys concerned about me? Why, why do you even care about me? And we said, well, you're the most influential person in evangelicalism, and we care about our movement. And Chris says, I listen to every one of your sermons. And he says, why are you doing that? What do you care? And, and we were, it was, all, like, it was all kind of, there was never any acrimony. It was always somewhat lighthearted. And uh, I think Chris said back to me, this, they recorded it, by the way, on their end. And they're going to give Chris a copy of the recording. But I don't know that any recording is ever going to be made public. <laughs> Chris said, oh, are you telling me to get a life? <laughs> So that was pretty funny. This Chris is a great guy. He's really good at pe- with people. And then we made our appeal. And, and my appeal was, first of all, I said, okay, let me make my appeal to you. I, I appeal to you to preach Christ. And let me tell you how I understand preaching Christ. Uh, preaching Christ has four points. Who Jesus is, what he did, why you need him, and what he expects of you. I said, nobody comes built in with this information, and they're not going to know this unless we tell them. And then I preached Christ to Rick Warren. Not in the sense, just in the sense of saying, let me tell you how I do that. And I preached his preexistence, his sinless life, his virgin birth, his miracles, the signs that he really was the Messiah, his death on the cross, why we need him, the blood atonement, God's wrath against sin, the fact that sinners don't realize they're biting under God's wrath. And, they need, and then what he expects of us to repent and believe the gospel. You heard it every Sunday. So I preached that. I said, that's what preaching Christ is. And we appeal to you to do that. Then he asked about my book. I gave him a copy. He asked me to sign it. That was kind of, I, I don't know why. That, that's, well, whatever the case, I was a little nervous. I don't know what to put in there. And I can't even remember what I wrote. I don't remember. I'd have to... Call, I have to call out there and ask Rick, what did I write in your book, in that book I gave you? And I gave him the Brian's discernment tool. 
And I opened it up in front of him, and I said, here's what we have. I showed in the pages. There's an explanation of how you do hermeneutics so that people could know how to use this. And I took every verse in your book, and here it is in the New American Standard. And he said something about, oh, the Lachman Foundation. I said, well, that's a good, good verse. A good, I think I said, yeah, I think it's a, a good literal Bible, and I'm not going to put the King James in there just because I don't want to give in to these King James-only people. And he laughed about that. So we had that. I laid that out there. Just left it on the table. And then Chris, he talked to Chris. Chris was really good. God bless you, Chris. Chris had been there listening to all these things. And so right from his heart, he, he said to, they call him Pastor Rick. He, he says, Pastor Rick, I've got to tell you how I felt and how I, how I would respond sitting under your teaching. You've been for three days telling us we need to do this, we need to do this, you need to do this, we need to manage our time, we need to commit more, we need to commit our money, we need to commit our time, we need to work. There are all these things you laid out that we're supposed to do and what you did not. And you even said that the key to the New Testament is repentance. That was in one of his sermons there. But but Chris says, but you, you didn't tell us you left something out. It's supposed to be repentance for forgiveness of sins. And you just have repentance, and it seems like it's a work I have to do. He says, what you didn't offer us this whole conference was forgiveness of sins. And he says, uh, you've got the law, you've got law, 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 but you, where's the gospel? Where is the means? He said, the people in your church need to know that they can find forgiveness of sins. And what they're hearing is they need to work more. That's what Chris told him. Wow. And, and I want to say this. Pastor Rick listened with kindness and respect to everything we said. Uh, I didn't, there was no acrimony. And mostly he, he said, well, when we'd bring up a point, he said, yeah, I agree with that. So he was, he was agreeing with us on our theology. There were no differences of theology that I know of other than we have a chasm as far as the difference in ministry philosophy. And then I explained to him that I had studied, I showed him a first edition copy of his book, purpose-driven church that was required for me in seminary. And I said, I've been trained in all of the things that you believe. I was trained under a disciple, Donald McGavran. I was trained in church growth theory. And it was very depressing because I was in a shrinking church at the time. And I can't remember the order that all this stuff came up. So I showed him that I had a first edition copy of purpose-driven church, which means I had it before anybody had heard of it. It was required in our class. Then we talked about sola scriptura. That was the second point I went out there hoping to talk about. And I, and I explained how soul of Scripture is under attack in the evangelical movement. And I said, I believe, how did I say it? I told him that I don't think he was practicing it. And, and, and I said very frankly, I, I think that you're, if you take, for example, a purpose-driven life, that what you have is a, an amalgamation of general revelation and special revelation. And he says, okay, what do you mean by that? Look at all the scripture in there. I said, well, here's what I mean. You correctly interpreted Romans 8.28 in your book. I chose one that I know that he did a good job with, and I, I said that in my book. So what you said about Romans 8.28 is true, is binding, and I have to believe it, and I have to obey it. Why? Because it's, it's a valid application of scripture. Therefore, it's binding. But then in the same book, with the same tone, you say, keep a journal. Keep a journal is not binding. There's nothing in the Bible that says I have to do that. And I said, I don't think your readers can 
can do this. I don't think your average reader can tell what's binding and from God through specific revelation and what's not binding because it's just simply general revelation. Okay, he listened to that. He said, I think the response was, well, we never, we didn't know we were going to sell 30 million books. We thought it was just going to be something for our own church. So his claim to us was that it was intended just for Christians in his church to start with. Okay, but nevertheless, I still think it's going to be confusing for anybody. Now, how did it go? Then we had a lot of discussion on the matters of the, uh, what our concerns were and what the general state of the church is in and why we have concerns. And we stuck with, we didn't go very far into any of these little details of the problems. I did try to bring up the fact that people are being pushed out of their churches by the purpose-driven movement. That one got nowhere. That was the one thing he came back and said, no. And he knew that I believe in Reformed soteriology, because I told him, and he knew that Chris believed in Lutheran soteriology, and those two aren't that different. And so he says, are you going to, do you think Luther is responsible for everything that ever was done in the name of Luther? Well, no. Do you think Calvin's responsible for everything ever done in the name of Calvin? Well, I can't answer anyway, but no. So he says, so therefore, I'm not responsible for everything done in my name. Next topic. I mean, in the sense that that was a non-starter. Uh, I still have my concerns about that. Okay, obviously. And we brought him up later. We had a private meeting for two, no, a semi-private meeting with his chief of staff for two hours where we actually debated after the discussion. So the discussion with Rick Warren was not a debate. It was us telling him our concerns and he listening respectfully. At the end of the meeting, hour and 15 minutes we had with him, in that meeting, he prayed for us and wanted to hug us, and he did. We, he's a hugger, big guy. And he went on to his next meeting, and then we sat down and ended up talking with his chief of staff for two hours. And then there we actually debated. Okay, we were, we, and uh, Chris, again, God bless him, he was trying to explain what, what our concerns were. Chris was saying, we need the cross at the center of everything, not just a starting point, and then you go on after it. He was contending for things like that. The outcome, at this point, we do not know. I don't know whether this will change anything, but I don't know that it won't either. And we've appealed to Pastor Rick Warren to preach Christ. So we'll see if he does. He didn't say he wouldn't, and he didn't say that he agreed to change anything. I don't know what, it may not have any influence, I don't know. But it's not a bad thing to ask someone to preach Christ. And I, I feel good about that. I believe God was with us. Uh, we weren't overly nervous. And I'd say it went as good as we could possibly hope for. And I want to also say this. Some people were concerned that we were going to get mesmerized or, uh, you know, he's going to try to draw us in. Uh, they didn't even try to do that. He, I think he genuinely wanted to know why are we disagreeing with him so vociferously. He just wanted to know why. Here's the last thing that I said at the very end meeting was getting finished. Here's the last thing that I remember saying. I said, okay, we're going to be done. I want to say one more thing, and here's my contribution. You're trying to do a reformation based on general revelation, and you cannot do that. You can't have a reformation based on general revelation. And he said, well, how can you say that? Jesus told us to do good. And I said, yes, he did, 
But a Christian doing good doesn't look any different than a non-Christian doing good. And unless we proclaim the terms of the gospel, they won't know why we're doing good. Something like that. I said the only two things we have to offer that they can't get from anybody else is salvation and sanctification. And they can't get that from anybody else. They can have, get good deeds from other people, but they can't get salvation and sanctification, and they're not going to get those from general revelation. And he agreed with me that you can't get sanctification and salvation from general revelation. It only comes through special revelation, which is the Bible. But my conclusion is this. The chasm between Chris Riseborough and me and Rick Warren that, that exists is based on ministry philosophy primarily. Privately, we agree on most doctrines. And here's the chasm of ministry philosophy. My ministry philosophy is you proclaim Christ to every creature on the face of the earth. And when you proclaim Christ, God will save people. And when they're saved, that's how they're added to the church. And then added to the church, you feed them, you equip them, and send them out to preach the gospel and so on. His ministry philosophy is you go out and do good and show them the benefits of Christianity. And once they see that they'll be benefited by Christianity, you get them to warm up to you and to join. And I don't think I'm misrepresenting anything. And then, having broken down all these barriers, then you can introduce them to Christ. So there is, I believe, the chasm. Now, I also think that it's detrimental to have that ministry philosophy because now you're thinking when you, let's say you're preaching to a crowd of people that you don't know, if you have that ministry philosophy, it's hard not to think, how am I going to make these people warm up to me? How am I going to make these people think that what I have to offer is a good thing? If you have the ministry philosophy that I have and John MacArthur, that I learned from John MacArthur, you don't, all you know is you're looking at a group of sinners you need to preach Christ to them. And out of that group of sinners, God's going to save some. And there's where you have your church. Do you see the difference? And that that is the bottom line, the most important difference. There are many details also that are at issue, but I'd say that was the big picture. Does that all make sense? Now, I'm not going to go out and say what I think is going to happen because we haven't seen what's going to happen. I just am reporting the facts of what happened at the meeting if uh, Pastor Rick starts preaching Christ more than he does now, even that I could rejoice in because the more Christ is preached, the more people will be saved. I don't know if it will happen. Pray that it will. Pray that it will. The appeal that I made to him in person is no different than the appeal I made to him in my book. We have a big problem out here. God's wrath is directed against people's sin. We need help. You've got the biggest audience. Help us. Preach Christ then people will be saved. Yes. Yes. I don't believe... See, theologically, I don't believe anybody has an inclination to want to be a Christian. But I believe the Holy Spirit can convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay. um, Yes. If you have some questions. Did you happen to ask him when he stands before the Lord one day... If he's going to feel that he did accordingly to... Well, I think that was implied. I mean, in my preaching of Christ, I did talk about God's wrath against sin, and the only way to get rid of it is the blood atonement, yes. I was aware of the concern some of the people had about you going out there alone and really felt that you should be going alone. That was fine. 
But it's interesting that the scripture you had today, 7-6, was, but God who comforts the depressed comforted <laughs> us by the coming of Titus. Yeah, by this case. His name is Chris. Yeah, I got it God, wrong. Comforted, <laughs> God comforted us by the coming of Chris. And Chris, by the way, invited me to his home to meet his wonderful family. And afterwards, we kind of de- debriefed you know, over a-, a wonderful meal. And he picked me up the next day and brought me to the airport. And we got to talk some more. And I look forward to more working with Chris. Um, another outcome, and this can, uh, that's fine. Here's one more outcome that's a good thing. We were given access to David Jan, I think he pronounces his name, who is the chief of staff. He's the, he's the top guy out there. And he told Chris and I that you can call my cell phone, you can email me, you have access to me. If you have concerns, I'm here to listen to them. And so Chris is going to be getting together, because he lives out there with this David, this chief of staff, and he's going to be talking with him about the law and the gospel. Okay? And I probably will take him up on that by, I don't know yet, yet what, how... He says he doesn't like to read a lot, but I'll, I've got some ideas. So uh, I think that's a good outcome, too, that we can talk to this fellow uh, about the, the same concerns, about preaching Christ and about the gospel.